Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Earlier this week, I was in the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Don't call it a state because I was in Boston to attend and speak at the Snowbound Expo in Boston and was also there to stop in at our blister-recommended shop, the Ski Monster, and I wanted to, for the first time, stop by the Parlor Custom Skis factory in East Boston to check out the factory and sit down with Mark Wallace, the owner and manager of Parlor to get a bit of an update on what is going on in the world of Parlor these days. The Parlor factory is just a short distance from Boston's Logan Airport, and I strongly encourage any of you who live in New England or have to travel in and out of Logan to set up a time to stop by the factory and see for yourself what Mark and his team are doing over at Parlor, including making custom skis, making semi-custom skis, and making snowboards and splitboards. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by Taos Ski Valley. Now, Taos is, in addition to being one of my favorite places to ski in the world and the place where I literally started Blister, Taos is the first and only certified B Corp ski area since 2017, And last year, Taos was also certified carbon neutral. So how do those certifications actually translate to -to day-to-day resort operations? Well, Taos is now running nine electric snowmobiles, three electric snowblowers. They are under contract to have the first fully electric snowcat in North America. They are also under contract to get a hybrid snowcat. And among other things, they have no single-use plastics at any resort dining outlet. We are going to be doing some ski and snowboard testing at Taos this winter. I'm very excited to get back there. And so maybe we'll see you on the mountain or at the Martini Tree. But till then, and to learn more, head over to skitaos.com. This episode is also presented by Ski Boot RX, which is our blister recommended shop in Billings, Montana. Opened by Tim Hedin in 2013, Ski Boot RX has become the go to for boot fitting in the area. Tim is a longtime veteran of the ski industry and a passionate and experienced boot fitter. He is the only master certified boot fitter in the Billings area. But everyone at Ski Boot RX is well known for their excellent customer service and willingness to help get you comfortable and out on the hill. The boot fitting team is trained via the Cetus Academy and they craft Cetus custom insoles and offer services like stance balancing and boot canting, as well as the full spectrum of boot mods and any boot customization you might need. Ski Boot RX also stocks aftermarket liners, including the Atomic Mimic Professional Liner, Intuitions, and Zip Fits, and, listen up folks, Blister members receive 15% off aftermarket liners and custom insoles. Just another reason why you ought to become a Blister member or a Blister Plus member. 
Furthermore, you can shop in-store online and Montana is tax-free, I'll remind you. So visit SkiBootRx.com to get shopping or visit SkiBootRx on your way through Billings, Montana and say hey to Tim and the team. And now, let's talk about custom skis and semi-custom skis and the age-old hot topic of ski waste width on the East Coast with Parlor Custom Skis owner and manager, Mark Wallace. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to be here in East Boston with Mark Wallace at Parlor's Factory. Mark, we just had actually my first food of the day at 3, 3 p.m. So thank you so much for finding pizza somewhere. Um, pretty good. I don't is I don't know that Boston's like known for its pizza, but given my state of hunger, I'm calling that that's like an eight out of 10 that we just had. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool to be here. Uh, obviously, you and I have known each other for years now, um, have recorded several conversations together but it's been a minute since we've done this and this is my first time actually being out here at the factory so um i thought it would make well in addition to getting to kind of see the whole space uh, which we just did um i thought it'd be a good time to kind of catch up on where things are at with parlor and end up in the process doing a bit of a state of the union on you know some stuff about custom skis where you guys are at with that and the like so maybe the first place to begin is um just to hear how you are talking about parlor these days so what is parlor uh yeah so i mean parlor we're a custom ski and snowboard manufacturer right we're based in east boston and you know we really prioritize uh creating a really different ski buying experience and integrating that into you know the whole process right so we sort of usher you through the entire buying experience and create a different way to uh to experience and purchase your skis has that sort of mission statement or description changed much from the early days of parlor i think so i mean we've always really focused on the customer i mean at the end of the day like we just want people to have more fun skiing i think i probably said that at all of our interviews mm. at some point and i think our job is to um create a product and experience that facilitates that and so i think the mission has not necessarily changed but the execution on that mission has really grown and changed a lot over the years right i mean we've been at this we pressed our first ski in 2009 we've been selling uh skis since 2013 um, which feels like a long time <laughs> and we've certainly learned a lot along that process. And so I think that, you know, a lot of the ideas are the same, but the execution and the way that we deliver that product and our breadth of experience, our engineering, our materials, you know, those things have all just grown. Our library has gotten bigger. Our expertise has expanded and it's allowed us to deliver that product, um, even better than we used to. In addition to that, what would you identify as being some of the other significant changes from those early days as a company to where you are now? Well, one, you make snowboards now. Correct. That's different. Some of the other things that sort of 
come to mind or that you view as being the most significant changes? Sure. Um, I think I'll talk about that in a couple of ways. Snowboards first, right? So, um, you know, I think that we've always had a focus at Parlor that, you know, anything that carves and slides or moves surfboards, skateboards, snowboards are all sort of like theoretically under the purview of like our mission in the long term. You know, um, skis are where we started, right? But snowboards are sort of like an obvious expansion of that. And so that's been really fun to explore that community and bring more people into the parlor community and, and grow that. Um, I think probably the most relevant outside change to the system um, is just how much the brand has developed its own voice, right? And sort of its own identity and created a community around it, right? And as that has expanded, I think it's really created a lot more places for people to learn about what we do. You know, we offer the build your own ski classes, which is really like kind of a not one of a kind, but we have by far the largest build your own ski course in the country. And that's um, continued to grow and uh and and expand which has been really positive brings people deep into the process we really prioritize education learning about skis you know people who um you know your audience is a little different they're pretty sophisticated they spend a lot of time reading reviews but a lot of the population doesn't do that you know and so one of the things we really try to do is we bring people in here we educate them about you know i'll talk with them this is how rocker works and this is why it's important for you and this is why we're designing your ski in this way or you know if you tell me these things about yourself as a skier then this is how we're going to integrate that into into your build when did you start the ski building classes i believe it was 2015 15 okay and i think that would be interesting for you to say a little bit more about who it is that you have showing up to these classes because mm. i i take it from what you just said some people are like wait what's this rocker thing right whereas i can at least imagine you might have some other people who are pretty far down that rabbit hole and maybe they are engineers by day and like so how broad of a range i guess do you see and then maybe rather than just talk about the extremes of the range is there kind of the like this is a pretty typical person who is come a, t- a typical profile of a person who is coming to like do these build your own ski classes yeah so it's it's a wide range uh, as you might imagine i mean we've had people as young as 12 or, or 11 come in oh. you know and uh you know sort of a super school project or just curious or parents are super involved um you know we've had obviously people at the upper end of the age spectrum come in as well. We've had people travel from all over the world. You know, we've had people come from Europe. We've had people come from outside the country just to take the class. So um, a lot of engineers, not surprisingly. <laughs> right. Um, but I really, I think, and I think this is true for the parlor customer base in general, like we, it tends to be somebody who cares pretty deeply either about the sport or about the technology. Right. That and more so for the class than, but then our just average customer customer. Yeah. But there's a lot of overlap there. And again, it's like people who just want to be deeper and more connected to the sport and their equipment and to learn and to experience what it's like. I mean, it is, it's really remarkable. I mean, having put hundreds of people through our build class at this point, right. I mean, people who have skied their whole life been, some of them even in the industry sold skis done these things i mean almost nobody has put a ski together 
right? It's a very small portion of the population that's done that. And I think it just really gives people pride and ownership in that. And also just like um, changes people's perspective on the, the product they're on in like a really interesting way. And so I think that, again, to answer your question, we have a wide range, but there's a real curiosity and sort of like passion about that group of people who like see this as like, you know, upping their ski IQ, upping their ski experience. You know, they've done the heli trip and they've done the cat trip and they've skied at Tuckerman's and they've skied in Europe and, you know, they raced or they did whatever, but they've never done this piece. And so it's sort of like adding to their um, ski repertoire as yeah. well. And to say quick word about how frequently are you doing the classes? When do you do them? How many weeks is it? Talk, I don't think yeah, you've yeah. said Mechanics, yet. Like, sure. So um, the, we run the class from April through September. So it's in the summer. Uh, it's two days, generally two people per class. So you come in for two full days. It's eight to five the first day, nine to two the second day. Huh. Um, and you're working alongside. We sort of rotate our team members through. Eight so to five. It's a full day. You're like full yeah. day, you know, close to shoes and concrete floors. And you got it. We put you right to work and we charge you more for it, which is like awesome, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a full, it's two, it's a full day and a half. And uh, when you walk out of here, the skis are done um, with the exception of the base grind. We do the base grind after people leave because of cure times and sidewalls and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's historically, it has been sold out and booked up like by March, give or take for the, for the summer. It's usually sort of one slot here or there, but like, um, it tends to book out pretty far in advance. We usually release the class dates right around Christmas the year before. So we take deposits all year long. It's $550 deposit, get your name on the list. And then we email out the dates and we'll book you into a slot. So that was a bit of the profile of the person signing up for the build your own skis class mm -hmm. how has the profile of maybe the typical parlor customer changed or evolved from where it was in 2014-15 it's sort of remained the same but there have been some some key changes to it i think um as we've gotten much bigger we have a much broader reach now um and i think people who are familiar with the brand view parlor as sort of a special ski and a special experience. And they want, it's something that a lot of people um, want to do. Right. And, it, and we'll do in sort of various ways. Um, and I think, you know, ge geographically the, the vast majority of our customers have roots in or are from new England. Right. Um, we have a lot of people who travel out west or houses out west. So, I mean, the ski range is broad. We make a lot of powder skis, make a lot of groomer skis, right? But the customer base has like a lot of residents within New England. Um, and then I think they kind of fall into two general camps. Uh, one is, is very gear educated and wants something very specific, right? I've got, xyz ski that's 90 underfoot i've got xyz ski that's 105 underfoot i like this one because of this and this one because of this but i i want to solve this problem i need a 97 underfoot that's stable in this way and forgiving in this way and and it does i can't find it in the market can you make that for me hmm. um, so wait and so would it be fair to say that customer they are looking to get specific in terms of like filling out a quiver 
or just specific in like I've had like I've had clients call me and be like, these are the 15 skis I demoed last year. These are my three favorites, but I don't like any of them. None of them are perfect. Gotcha. Can you make this? Wow. Can you make the unicorn? Yeah. Uh, You're a unicorn maker. Okay. (laughs) We try. I like that. Uh, Right. So that's that is a segment. Uh, I I mean, that's not the same as I I was thinking like, okay, I own four skis, but I'd like to slot something in on the wider end of the spectrum or kind of in the middle. But this is actually like, I kind of like these three skis, but I'm not stoked on just one of them for all of the things. Can you come and make that unicorn? Right. Yeah. So yes. Or, or there's like, or it's like a sweet spot. Like, you know, I've loved this ski in the 105 to 110 category. They don't make it anymore. You know, do you like, I really want a parlor because of, you know, the graphics and the experience and, the, you know, the brand recognition. Like, can I get, can you make me something like that? Right. And then we will tailor that ski. We still do all the fitting, flex profile length, all that stuff. But we, you know, we'll sort of chase that gap in a quiver. So it's one of those two things. Um, I do think though, that's probably call that like 20 or 30% of our customers. The other big group um, are like, they love skiing. They're super passionate about it, but they're not super gear savvy. Yeah. We call right? them gear dorks. They're not gear <laughs> dorks. I was literally talking to somebody the other day. And they're like, you know, you should maybe stop referring to all your Gear 30 audience as like gear nerds and gear dorks. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they like it. They do like, like it. I, but I, I mean, I say all the time, like, we're gear nerds, so you yeah. don't have to be. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Like, that's right, my right. job, yeah. not yours. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, the, and the fact is, not everybody is. And we are fine with that, right? We celebrate right. people who love this sport and have not, they don't spend every night up till 3 a.m. reading every review. Like, we care first and foremost about people who really get joy and pleasure out of being out in the mountains sliding around so we while we love our gear nerds and our gear dorks we also love the non-gear nerds and gear dorks and we there's no we don't shame people for not being gear dorks right i'm cleaning up i'm this is me you're helping me through my (laughs) own mission statement maybe right now yeah but but that that segment is like they they know they want the right product for Mm -hmm. them and like we make that super easy for them. Yeah. Right. Like if you call me and say, you know, the more information I have, the better. Yeah. But we'll look at video yeah. or we'll talk it through and you know, have these conversations all day. Yeah. But like if you give me a profile of how you want that ski, where you're gonna use it, how you're gonna use it, what do you want it to feel like, then we do the engineering work. Yeah. Right. And so we solve that problem of like, do I have to try all these skis or like, you know, I don't have time to demo or, you know whatever it is like we just we make that experience really painless and easy and fun um for that customer yeah. group by the way this is worth spending a second on i do sometimes still it's, it's it's frankly i think a bit less common than it used to be but we used to a lot it kind of talk to people hear from people like oh yeah yeah i'm i'm not, I'm not that gear nerd they probably said something i don't know more politically correct than that like oh yeah i don't know anything about ski design or the rest so it's it's probably, you can probably just put me on anything and it's fine. And it's like, that's definitely not true. It's, it's not definitely fine. not true. It's definitely not fine. And and the analogy, like if, like I might not know anything about wine, but if we found for you, like if there were 10 glasses, 
One of those 10, you might be like, I have no idea why, but I love this one way more than the other nine. And that I think is absolutely true. It's a like that's absolutely true 100%. when it comes to a ski boot, a mountain bike, skis, etc. So I think sometimes people who aren't the gear dorks are like, oh, I, I don't spend time reading reviews or I don't really know anything about the engine engineering. So just give me anything and it's fine. That's the fallacy. I want to get away from yeah. that. So you don't shame the person who's like, wait, you're not a complete gear dork. What is wrong with you? No, but break them out of like, nah, if, if you talk to us a bit, and this is what you're yeah. saying, right? Talk to us a bit. Let us go figure out effectively what wine do we think you're going to really enjoy the most given your ability level, where you like to ski, you know, yada, yada. And um, that's the part that I think I'd, I'd love for more and more people to realize just because you don't know all the details does not mean you won't have a clear preference you man, you yeah. might not know why, totally, but and you will have a clear preference, and something will make you feel more confident, or more scared, or less in control, or more in control, etc. And one hundred percent. And I just like the way we hear it back is like, this is the best ski I've ever been on. Mm -hmm. I just I love it. And they don't have to know why, because like I gave up. Like there was a long time early in the business, things that have changed. Like just trying to convince people <laughs> that they were wrong or that they needed something different or whatever. Um, and, but, and so like, if somebody doesn't want to talk tech, like I don't drag them through the mud on that stuff. Yep. I say, that's right. You know, like they tell me what they want. I repackage it. I say, ex explain why, what the tech elements are, but this is how the ski is going to feel. They approve that. They say it's going to feel this way. They don't have to know why they love it. Right. I mean, like it's just like getting in a car that's really well built and well suited for your needs. Like it just, feels right and so and i mean in gear like understanding gear is a lot of work yeah. as you well know right like you really got to dig in and spend some time and i think it's one of the one of the things i really like about the way you guys treat gear is the location of gear right how does it compare to other brands how how might you think about this you know how does it feel on snow all those things i think th those are super valuable um but again for some people don't want to do that and they you know if you walk into a ski shop and say i don't care you're probably going to get the wrong ski yeah it's funny. So like, but what you just said a few minutes ago was the signal for you or the code language from somebody who doesn't really know the gear or, or know how to talk about or describe exactly the sensations they're feeling. What you hear is best ski ever. Right. The irony is from our role, what the thing we always say, like we won't do is that if we're saying best ski ever, and now it's just like, go take our word for it. That's what we rail against. So like yeah, yeah. the gear reviewers, the media, you're not allowed, we're not allowed yeah. to say that, but it's absolutely fine for the recreational, the, the, the enthusiastic skier or boarder to be like, best ski I've ever been on. Right. And then that's for you, be like, ah, we, we hit the mark for them. Right. Yeah. And that's what I think. I mean, like, this is a slight digression, which I won't go too far into, but like, I mean, I don't know exactly what the number is now, but we'll call it XYZ large brand. Like they will have more than 50 or 60 SKUs, like individual skis that they make in each brand, right? I mean, there's probably a combination of skis out there that works pretty well for a lot of people, right? But to be in a position where we have 
you know, really advanced engineering, really great materials and the ability to like make just one ski for each individual person Mm -hmm. is like just a very cool space to exist. Right. Cause like you don't, you don't have to dissect the entire lineup and the brands and you can, but like, you know, you just have to deliver that person. And it's, it's almost sort of two steps, right? Like we fit them into the right bucket, the right style of ski, which is actually harder than it looks. I think you would even probably agree with me on that. You know, like just cause you want an all mountain ski, like there's, that's a big term, right? Yeah. What range is that metal? Is it no metal? Are you off piece? Are you on piece? You're all these things, right? So you steer them into the right spot and then you have this ability to change the flex, change the radius, change the tail rocker, make these little adjustments, like these little cues. Cause people ask me all the time, like sort of like, what's the sauce? Like, how does it work? Right. The big bucket, getting that right super important and then listening to these cues well i really like sometimes i like to control my speed with a skid or like you know like i I like to ski a little more upright so you're going to increase the tail rocker right soften the tail a little bit might change the length right those little adjustments coupled with like being in the right zone like it's just makes it work you mentioned something and i actually immediately thought that's actually a fairly high level bit of feedback to provide no one really says to you sometimes i like to control my speed with a skid that's that's fairly high level isn't it to to be able to say ah that's what i do as a skier let me rephrase that uh that's what i hear that's what you it, yeah. right so one of, I, but, I'm, but, sorry. I'm sorry right but that's so yeah they wouldn't say that but what i would ask right would be like you know when you're skiing on a steeper trail and you start to feel out of control like what do you do Right. Pray. Just start praying. That's what I <laughs> That's do. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, but you know, you know what I mean? Or like these little things like do you ski? I talk a lot about stance width. I talk a lot about turn shape. People don't like, but I'll do it in a non-technical way. Right. But if somebody's like, no, I really like, I really prioritize control. You know, I like to make sort of like quick turns. Like then I start to hear like, okay, that ski has got to be able to release at the end of the turn. Right. If somebody's like, I go super fast you know, I, I huck them sideways to control my speed, right? That's like a different, it's a different build. It's a different quality. So these little, like I, I just, I'm decoding always, right? I'm trying to understand what the skier wants and what they're telling me and how they're telling me. So like, yeah, if somebody says I control my skier, I'm like, that's easy, but like, that's what I'm trying to hear. You know, where's your pressure in the turn? How much energy are you generating? Where are you putting that in? And like, how does that translate to design? We're going to talk a bit about sort of custom skis and semi-custom, but before we get there, I do actually want to talk a bit about the the range of shapes and products that y'all are making right here, actually like three feet behind me, right? Um, out of this, out of your shop here in East Boston. So talk a little bit about that. That's probably a really, somebody is listening to this who isn't familiar is like what actually do they make uh i mean so i would say across both skis and snowboards like one of the things that we prioritize here at parlor right is is it's truly is a custom experience right and i think a good way to talk about that is just the range of products that we're able to make right so quick examples right we will make a 68 underfoot straight ski right 185 old school full camber stiff as a board straight ski right all the way up through you know like 
super, super carving skis, right? Nine meter radius, 10 meter radius, stuff that just does not exist, right? People who love low speed carving, like we, we can make that ski, uh, and we'll make stuff huge powder skis, different levels of camber, different, uh, tight radius on a big powder ski, you know, skis with crazy, crazy deep rocker. Right. And then, I mean, the vast majority of what we build, 85% of what we build is sort of like between 75 and 110 underfoot, some combination of rocker and camber, tightenol, no tightenol, right? All variations on, I mean, there's a huge range in there, right? But like, it's generally sort of like within the range of like normal skis. Normal-ish. But we really, we have the capability to make and also recreate things that are out of print. You know, people have favorite skis that are long gone from they're even off the ebay cult sites right and and you know it's obviously not exactly the same but like we can make any shape we can you know meet a lot of those needs are we allowed to talk about the v ski as i'm calling it now (laughs) or like i don't know what the legal ramifications are for this probably not good uh well i think we could talk about it this way right i think that they're um brands make changes to skis sometimes that consumers do not like You've mm-hmm. talked about this at length and many <laughs> and times. One, I've never, I've never said this once ever. How so, dare you? So vehemently that ski companies have brought back skis. Yeah. So it's a full disclosure. You're not immune to that. But this, this particular, we have, we had a group of clients that, um, loved to ski and did not like the update to the ski. And, uh, we, we made a couple different versions of it. And we actually, the reason we were talking about is we had to rebuild our molds specifically for this ski to get enough rocker out of it we had to like like modify the press pretty substantially to make it but um we did do it that really is that really if 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 you need a moment in the conversation to really be impressed to the lengths that parlor will go to get you your custom ski they had to rebuild their molds yeah i got an email from the client back that said um i truly i'm paraphrasing but we really respect the degree to which you care about the perfect powder ski. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, powder's really fun. You need the race ski for it. By the way, this has, we might as well have this conversation now. I still get emailed probably, I'd say on average, at least two to three times a month where people are like, why have you not yet been able to get Rossignol to make the sickle again, which is a 110 millimeter wide ski, full reverse, but really subtle reverse. I'm just saying, this is something that like we could work on if you want. What I'd really want to do though, I've actually also had a blister member say like, you can borrow our sickle if that helps, you know, as you like prototype this out, but if, you know, we would, we'd come up, we'd have to come up with a different name, but, um, that, that is of, of all the skis from a like consistent ongoing basis, that probably is the ski that we get asked about the most. Like, Interesting. Yeah. Like people, people ride for Hellbents, K2 Hellbents. Yeah. But that feels almost like that's more about a cult status thing. I think the sickle represented a ski that people are just like, I love that thing. And I still have not found a ski out there today that rides the way that one does. So I don't know. Just saying. Hey, yeah. We'll just, uh, I mean, we're a look dealer. So we need to be a little careful, right? We'll <laughs> get our binding privileges pulled. But um, 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> that might be, that might actually be a fun project. And then I would stop getting as, you know, I would well, you could just, we'll put it on the website. You could just send people to buy it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We'll, link. we'll sell it. Link, link, link okay. out. It might be a fun project. Um, we just have to make sure there's nothing weird about the construction. So I will say it's like sometimes, you know, um, like it's truly custom, but I say we're a little bit like Burger King, right? Like you can have it your way, but you can't have a medium rare burger, right? Like if you want something with like, you know, super weird construction that we don't have the materials for, like, like we don't make app skis, gotcha. like we don't make foam core skis, right. not that people want, but right. we can't <clears throat> well, replicate, I think we can't replicate a rental ski because we don't make rental skis like that, for yeah. example. Okay. But the thing about that sickle is I think there was nothing going on like from a wild technology materials point of view. I think it was fiberglass, some teat and all. So um, that that's what would actually in some ways be cool about that project is it wasn't the like, oh, we've used the most revolutionary materials to make this thing. It's about dialing in as it often is shape, flex pattern, weight. And, um, okay. Wow. I didn't, I didn't see us. I didn't see that I didn't coming, see but us I'm landing I'm here at this part in the conversation, but, uh, well, maybe that sort of functions as a segue into this question. I said, I wanted to ask about how you think about semi-custom versus custom, right? Cause we are seeing, I think the word custom thrown around in the ski world, maybe more than ever before. And you know, comp- I think companies are justified in using these terms, but maybe not everybody has the same definition. So at Parlor, how do you think about like what falls under custom for you versus what falls under semi-custom? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. Thanks for asking. Um, and again, I don't think there's a wrong answer on that, but it is specific to different brands. I think they do think about it differently. And I think that just because it says custom, it can mean different things. So this is one of the biggest things, one of the biggest of evolutions in our product line recently um, has been the delineation between semi-custom and custom, right? So semi-custom skis from Parlor are, you know, we have basically a carving ski, a women's all-mountain ski, uh, a sort of two different types of all-mountain ski, bumps, woods, trees, and powder. That's how we sort of think about the categories. And that also represents our custom categories. But we have sort of like our most popular combination in each one of those zones. Pick a length. You pick one of our 12 pre-designed graphics. You pick your model. You order the ski. That's built to order from our factory and customized in that way. We call that semi-custom. A custom ski involves a consultation, right? So you sit down and talk to me in person on the phone. Um, Custom graphics, right? So you work with one of our design team one-on-one to come up with the top sheets. And, you know, the, the process for that is it's a, it's an experience and the end result you have a ton of control over, right? So you're sort of being shepherded through the ski buying experience in a much more sort of like personal one-on-one way than with like the normal ski buying process. Um, and, you know, that means something different for everybody. Like we talked about, if you need... You know, if you need a 132 underfoot ski with a 12 meter radius, that's custom to you. Great. Right. If you, if you want, you know, a 94 underfoot rocker camber rocker, Titanol 
19 meter radius ski, but it needs, you want to be heard and you want that ski to be right for your style. That's custom to somebody else. Even if it's a very similar build to, you know, say a semi custom ski or whatever it's being, it's having the confidence and going through the process that the ski is made and designed for you that like translates to better performance on the snow. Do you have clear thoughts about who ought to be maybe thinking more about the semi-custom versus the custom? And and are people kind of confused about that when they phone you guys up? Or are they coming in, I'm here to go through the custom process with you or or not? Like, what does that look like from the yeah. calls or the conversations you guys have? Yeah. So I think, I mean, the customer for a semi-custom ski versus a custom ski, I think it's not confusing anymore. Uh, people generally have like navigated the website and see that there are these different options. Sometimes I'll get questions. Um, a lot of times it comes down to, again, that sort of research piece and how interested people are in the graphics. Yep. Right. So like, you know, if somebody calls and the ski they want is one of the semi custom skis. I won't necessarily ups like, yeah, try to, talk I, I don't, they don't have to. It's like, gotcha. it's, the custom skis are more expensive, but like from a business standpoint, they're all good. It's like, it's just more work to make a custom ski. Yeah. So like, and the semi custom skis are really high quality. They're well vetted. You still have a lot of control over them. So like, I think it's just, and we get a lot of repeat purchases. So like people have taken the class or own a couple custom skis will add to the quiver from the semi custom ski. Uh-huh. It also allows us to demo much more effectively. So a lot of times people demoing custom skis, as you might imagine, is complicated because you have infinite options, (laughs) right? So, but somebody who has skied on a ski at a demo, all our semi-custom skis are represented in our demo fleet. And so if you have tried a ski and you love it, people will order it that way, right? So that sort of simplifies that. Or, you know, they'll create, all right, I like this. I, I understand how this ski skis and I understand how this ski skis. Let's make a custom ski that's in the middle. So like, I think they're very complimentary yeah. to each other. Um, and again, we have a lot of people that will go through both processes. Um, so I don't think there's like a wrong answer there. They've both been really successful. I mean, 70% of what we do is still full custom. I think that's the core of our business. Um, but I think it's a nice complimentary product. All right. Well, it is now two days later. We have gone forward in time from when I was sitting with you, Mark, at Parlor Headquarters in East Boston, because now I am back in Crested Butte. You are at your home, but I had to go catch a flight the other day. And so we parted ways. I actually made it back in one piece. Always. I'd never take that for granted, by the way. You know, it's always a good thing when you travel, like made it safe, all good. Um, But anyway, I wanted to ask a few more questions before I let you get going. And so I think what we ought to do here is a bit of a state of the union on the old famous topic of ski width when it comes to kind of East Coast skiers. So the last podcast I did with you, that was about five years ago. And I'm curious, as a custom ski manufacturer, from your perspective, what you're seeing these days, maybe as opposed to five or 10 years ago, does it look the same? Are attitudes the same? What are, what are you seeing from your perspective on the width question? I love a wider platform ski, especially a flat camber, low, very low camber ski, because I like the power you get from that and how much easier you can 
like how much more leverage you get with less knee angle. I feel like you can really carve a wide ski and you can sort of pivot it and you can do a lot of things on that ski that, um, not that you can't do on a narrower ski, but I just think that it's like skied in the right way. It can be like very flowy and fluid and beautiful, like even on sort of like gnarly East Coast stuff. So personal preference, not a trend, but one around 110, 108 to 112. The ski that I ski probably 50% of the time out here is 112 underfoot. It's a McFallon Pro. It's in the lineup. Um, a couple little tweaks to it, but it's basically off the rack. You know, and then I think when you get into the narrower ranges, like good all mountain range, I ski some skis right around 100. Those are sort of like my heavier, damper, more frontside ski. And then I do have, like, I have a 78 underfoot carving ski, right? So, and that can be fun when you could see the ground through this snow or ice, as it were. Like, that's relevant. Like, it's quick edge to edge. It's stable. It doesn't chatter. You can make high speed turns on it you know, vary your turn shape, whatever you need to do. I think that's a valuable tool too. But I just think when the snow is good and grippy, like just having that big shovel on a wide ski, you can really just like makes carving a lot easier. And uh, you, I think you can be a little more lazy and get away with some good. Okay, because this is going to be the most contra... We're going to get like hate <laughs> messages about this. So I just want to make sure... So we're talking about really firm New England groomers, groomers, not not all mountain use where you might be running off and getting into some trees at one point during the day. But right now we are just talking about groomers and you are sitting here claiming that a wider platform can be better than a so a 108 underfoot can be better than a 78 because it will be more forgiving. Allow you to be a little lazier, a little less precise. Yeah, I don't want to put words in your mouth here. Again, I am worried about the hate mail I'm going to get or the pipe bombs. Well, let's try not to get any pipe bombs. And like I said, I I am not trying to convince anyone of this, but I'm talking about my own personal preferences, right? And I do think it's like I and I will. We also need to step back and define firm snow in New England because yeah, it, it is not the same thing all the time. Right. I mean, and the way I would talk about it is like there are icy days in New England, which it's like your kitchen table. Right. You can't get an edge into it. It's chattery. It's not fun. One twelve hundred foot are not fun. on those days, Right. You can make it work, but that's not what I'm talking about. There are a lot of what I would consider firm days. There's like this beautiful sort of like semi aggressive, like what you guys would call icy in Colorado. Right. Like that chalky peely really grippy fun snow you know what i'm talking about that snow i think yeah but we don't call chalk ice we're not confused that chalk <laughs> is not the same as ice but would you call it firm <laughs> this is uh maybe right so firm I mean, snow chalk is just okay so call it a firm day out chalk west. is amazing though Yes, I agree. Yeah, I love right. skiing in Chalk. Day out west. So like that, or or like a good, you know, early morning corduroy here. You could get, you can get purchase. It's got grip. That snow for me, I would rather be a hundred to one ten underfoot. You know, because again, it's just one. If you could, could get the tip in and you can carve it, like you can just really lay into that wide ski. Now, I'm not talking about crazy, like not something with short running length, right? Not like a banana powder ski. But like a wide ski with a reasonable radius, 18, 19 meter radius, solid flex pattern, beefy construction, 
low flat reverse camber. Those geese sing on hard days. That's my, that's people can send me hate mail if they want, but uh, I think if you ski them the right way and, and that they're awesome. But uh, I wanted to push you on this just a little longer. Sure. Why does the width of this ski, why is wider better on a, we've defined, we tried to define terms here, but on a firmer day, not complete and utter bulletproof. Why do you think the wider platform is actually, you'd pref- you prefer it to a 78, a 68 underfoot? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I, it's about leverage for me. I can, I can roll the turn. I can roll up on the top of the turn, get to the front of the boot and then stand there and lean in pressure the turn. I mean, whatever, put your hip down. Um, and that ski is going to make a GS turn. And all I got to do is stand on it and let it come around. Easy in, easy out. Flat camber, wide platform. Um, now, again, if you're trying to make a bunch of slalom turns or, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you like to go straight and then slash and pivot, different story, right? I'm talking about carving, like, you know, steep to mid radius, good blue, like that type of turn. I think is awesome. Now, I mean, if it's if it's crummy or it's like starts to get chopped up a little bit, hundred underfoot, give me some camber, give me some metal. Like those are all in the same zone. But for me, like if I like, I feel like you get the best performance out of like a like seventy eight, eighty underfoot a GS ski. Like the snow's got to be really hard if you want to make that ski work well because you got to prep put so much energy into the top of the turn to get it to release properly. But if the snow's not hard enough, it's just you can make turns on it, but I just don't think it optimizes like. Okay, Oof. This gonna, I'm I'm a little nervous for me and you both. Even though I am, I'm like I feel like I'm going to be collateral damage in this somehow. <laughs> it, it, and and I, I I think what maybe is a little confusing is you did actually start by saying firm snow, and now I feel like you're backing up because one of the things that I definitely say right. on what I would call a soft groomer that's where i actually think a 68 to 78 millimeter wide ski can actually get a bit scary mm-hmm. because when that thing when you're on edge in on a soft groomer when that wants to the front half of that ski wants to knife down or some like spear down yeah that actually to me can get a bit scary whereas a wider platform if you're going to start like knifing in or sinking in I just find it easier to like be in a deep carve, still come out and it feels, um, I don't know, like less like you're stuck, um, stuck and maybe getting forced into a turn that you're not trying to stay forced into on a, on a skinnier ski on what I would call soft groomers. Right. Yeah. And, and also it can be grabby, right? Like, like again, a really, a really stiff ski, like we're, like you're talking about wants feedback right it requires for feedback from the snow or that's how i think about it and so if the feedback is inconsistent or you're getting too deep into the turn then that that's going to cause you problems right and and again a wider ski can kind of sit on top of it but um i mean you you also changed the question a little bit i think now that we like we could do semantics really deep here i don't think we have to but like firm like it's also like is that the perfect ski for that day or is it a ski that I like in those conditions? Right. 
Is that was sort of the question? You said like, you liked it. You started this whole thing by claiming how much you love 112 millimeter wide skis for carving on the East Coast. I do. Check well, the tape. Fine. I do. But I'm also like, I don't always ski groomers here, right? So like if I'm going out 50% of the time, if I'm skiing a Mad River and I'm coming down Paradise, I want that washy up and over, even if the snow's bad, you know, again, you can see the ground through, it's a different game. But if this, I want to be able to move and maneuver and swish and do all that stuff that a wider rocket ski lets me do. And when I dump out onto the groomer, I want to make big, smooth GS turns. And that, yeah. I think, plays much better for me, for my style, in that 112 underfoot, 108, 112. Um, but again, I would, there's another way to phrase this, which is like, it, when it's really bad, I would almost always rather be on. A one like a hundred ish than a seventy ish for me. When it, right, like when if it's it, really when bad, it's really ice really, for all for all for all mountain. You are not just talking about groomers. You are talking about moguls, trees everywhere on the mountain. Yeah, yeah. If I'm gonna go ski a crappy day and I gotta ski everywhere, the one hundred two, camber rocker, camber okay, metal. Yeah, not super long. Because you get really whooped on a hard ski like that and the trees and the nasty stuff. Um, but if you're like, or if you're like, hey, you got to go ski, you know, you got to go ski five days. You don't know where. You don't know what you're going to get. That's probably the ski I'm going to grab. Or I'm going to grab my 112 and hope I get a powder day and just deal with the other days. Personally. But that's not the question you asked. It's the answer you got, but it's not the question not. you asked. <laughs> the question yeah, you asked was about... last se- 17 minutes of... tangent but at least you're gonna get some hate mail out of this so i feel like i win either way yeah well as long as the people are interested right um Mm -hmm. so for what we see and what's changed uh i think waste widths have normalized a little bit from what we see i mean we build a ton of skis between 88 and 94 underfoot right east coast front side all mountain um I feel like that has come down a touch from the last time we talked five years ago. I think stuff had worked its way up a little bit for a while and it's kind of like come back into reason, I would say. And then, you know, for what we see, like, um, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people and this is a totally valid position who are like nothing over 80 ever in New England. Right. That. I, Even for moguls, trees, anything, we're t- again, I want to be clear when we're talking, yes. whether we're just talking groomers or whether we're talking about truly all mountain everything. Yeah. And it tends to be people who have been skiing, who came out of the straight ski era, not exclusively, but for the most part, like this is my all mountain ski. I want to be, you know, maybe 82, maybe 83, but they, they tend to ski with their feet closer together. A lot of them are very elegant, very good skiers, right? But they like mm-hmm. quickness edge to edge and the pressure tends to come later in the turn, right? And those are things that a cambered, narrower ski benefits, right? I mean, that's what feels good to them. And again, I think like there are trends and norms and that's what we're talking about. But again, the preference and style have, as you talk about a lot in many places, right? Have a huge impact on waste particularly right um because like you know if people have knees that hurt on a wide ski they're not going to want to ski a wide ski they're going to like they're going to modify their 
their turn shape and stuff according right um so anyway so i think that and then for powder for like east coast all mountain we call it like all mountain powder free ride like that sort of category of ski i feel like it's really settled in the sort of like 104 to 108 zone for us i feel like a lot of people feel that that's like an adequate amount of ski um Mm -hmm. and then i don't know if this is a trend but I, I, for carving skis, I sell and fit a lot more skis in the low 80s, low to mid 80s than the mid 70s. Um, and maybe that's my bias coming through or maybe it's just making them a little bit more versatile. But again, I feel like for people who are carving mostly on intermediate to advanced groomed terrain, like uh, a little bit of tip rocker, a tight radius and a little more width underfoot just give you more leverage. Um, than like you would get on a slalom ski or GS ski or like, you know, a true carving ski, call it, um, in air quotes. Uh, I think that that's sort of the range. So those are kind of the brackets, right? Very, we're not yeah. fitting a lot of people over 110 unless they're, they want a powder ski for out west or, you know, they've got a yeah. lot of skis and they want that really deep day ski, but that 88 to 93, 94 zone, um, is super popular. You know, carving skis in the low 80s to 70s, and then all mountain skis, sort of like call 104 to 108. Yeah. And maybe is it safe to say somebody who is looking at a 68 millimeter wide ski, maybe they just aren't looking to parlor for that ski? They've got their kind of traditional company that's been making those for many decades, and that's just where they're headed for a very kind of specific you know sub 70 millimeter wide dedicated carver yes i think so i mean and so for years i think actually probably the last time we talked i i was like we didn't make a lot of carving skis right so we sort of like when we Mm -hmm. first started the business right it was like mid fat all mountain around 100 laminate construction no metal you know different camper profiles that's sort of like where our design aesthetic was and where our head was and you know as we've gotten bigger and as we have more clients and we've built a lot more skis technology has improved we've widened what we make and we make a lot more skis with metal in them we make a lot more skis with camber in them um i think we still have our own take on those things but i was always like i'm not making a carving ski like everybody makes carving skis like like just like go buy a slalom ski or you know go buy a head or go buy you know like just go buy a carving ski it's not that interesting um and the Warbird, which we make in the custom line as well, but 7,800 foot, 16 meter radius, depending on the length, right? 14 to 19, um, is super popular. And it's a very stable, very quick, very user-friendly car. Right? It's like, I call it a cheater slalom ski, but it just, like, it just works, <laughs> you know? And so finally we started, I was like, all right, enough people have asked me for the ski like i'm going to start prototyping and testing it and uh and we did and it's I, it's not our our best seller but it's close the cardinal pro and the warbird make up a good chunk interesting semi custom so you started this whole thing by talking about 112 millimeter wide skis and now you're like our best selling ski one of our two best selling models is 78 millimeter wide wow well one of the hard truths you're a parent of a young child is that right <laughs> and it's like almost it's actually after 10 p.m on the east coast now at this stage of the conversation i'm very i'm, what's I'm very lucid i'm very energetic but this is what i'm telling you okay. like again one of the hard truths that i had to realize 
as we've grown this company over the past 11 years is that I am not my client, right? My job is partially to make skis that I love, which is awesome. And Mm -hmm. it's mostly to make skis that my clients love that fit them really well, that make them happy. And so that every single individual client, what is he or she looking for? Right. That's hundred percent. Yeah. What do they want? I, I will stop making fun of you because I agree with you on that very much. That should be the, mission. well, and I think it's, it's not about you, Mark. Exactly. It's not about but you. you. I mean, but I, it, I'm talking and I get to talk about that. Um, and also, I mean, but you said it, uh, you know, anytime I get to talk about wide skis in the East in a semi-safe space, I like to do it. Um, but I will say, you know, you said this years ago, uh, we were in Thailand skiing together and, and you were like, I, I know what I like. My job is to review skis accurately. Right. Which is yeah. the same thing as my yeah. job. Like I know exactly what I like. Yeah. I mean, I've got seven or eight pairs of skis that are perfect for me. Like it's a, it's a yeah. perk of the job, <laughs> but you know, yeah. my job is to make skis for make the best ski possible for people. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time and energy and working on the engineering and the materials and the process and all these things to make sure that my clients have the best on snow experience. Right? Yeah. Okay. You brought that around. I like how you brought that around. Killing it over there. Um, hey, I'm resurrecting an old question because I realized talking, it was a conversation you and I had like eight years ago. And back then, I would end many of my podcast conversations with the question, what's the best question I haven't asked you? And I was looking back at our last Gear 30 episode and I saw that question in there and it made me very nostalgic. And so I'm bringing it back. Um, We've now talked literally for two days. And in fact, we saw each other. We had multiple conversations in Boston. So we've had like, I don't know, five of the last seven days or something we've been talking. Um, What's the best question I haven't asked you in like 10 hours of conversation? (laughs) Uh, <laughs> this might be a little bit of a softball for myself, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, okay. like, uh, like, what do you love about your job? Like, why, like, why are you still doing this? Um, no, I, I like, I actually like this because I just was hanging out with the ski monster in Boston and I went on a very, very angry, loud rant against the number of burned out people in the ski industry. Um, So I love that what you just, by the way, this was not scripted, (laughs) I promise. But I love that you're talking about, like we're back into talking about passion. So no, I I like this and I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, I mean, it's some days are work, right? I mean, work's work and work's work. That's how it goes. But, but I, um, I love, talking to people about skiing and hearing why they love skiing and talking to them, sharing stories about, you know, my life in skiing so far, why it's become so important to me, why I chose to build skis. Right. I mean, for me, it's this blend of like, I worked construction for a while and, you know, I love business and I love skiing and I like talking to people. Right. So like, this is like just this sort of like awesome mix for me. Um, you know, and and then hearing from people, back from people like, you know, I was like, you have the skis that you made me have changed my skiing experience in some way, right? And you know, 
I didn't think skis mattered. You know, my husband got me this gift. We went through this process. But now, like, it's way more fun. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Skiing's super fun. Like, talking about skiing's fun. Being on the hill, being with your friends, being with your family. Like, those are all things that, like, keep me stoked. And I get to hear those stories all the time. So, to answer my own question, uh, that's the most fun part. I love it. No, it's great. And that's that's still very much what we all who are connected to the outdoor sports industry, that's that's our only job. Like we are ultimately in service to individuals to help them go have the best possible time outside. And if you're not into that anymore, um I will I will swear less <laughs> in this paraphrasing of my talk, but um like please get out. You know, like get out because we don't, it's too good and it is too rich and we are too, uh, it's too rich in the sense of like the best things in life rich, right? And I, I love it when passionate people are the ones making the gear and talking about the gear and, and genuinely trying to help people out so that they also can sort of be as excited about all of this as some of us still are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah, it is getting late out there, um, but I have one more question for you. We have started also doing this segment that we call Crashes and Close Calls, and we started doing this because we just want to raise awareness about um, injuries, how often they can happen, how often we are <laughs> really close to having having bad things happen to us, and maybe we get lucky, but... This all started, we put together this Blister Plus injury insurance thing, and and um, it's been really uh, eye-opening and sometimes funny, uh, but to hear just different people that we talk to around the industry, whether it's athletes, former racers, ski builders, etc., share a close call story or a, not a close call, an actual crash anecdote. So what do you, what do you got for us, Mark? <laughs> uh, I got a couple, I mean... Knock on wood, I've been pretty lucky. Uh, I've had some couple, couple not like injuries, but you know, I'm mostly in one piece uh, for somebody who's been skiing a long time and and biking and doing all that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think one of my most memorable, and I've had lots of crashes. <laughs> all, <laughs> like if you're not crashing, you're not trying thing. Um, but uh, but I I have two two memorable ski crashes uh, that I will uh, that I will share with you. Uh, the first, I, I don't remember how old I was. I was, I was a youth racer. Um, I lived in Park City at the time, raced with Park City Ski Team. Um, and they used to have a World Cup out there on uh, CB's run. I think it might be called Ligeties now. Um, but the GS Trail at the Eagle Race Arena uh, is is no joke of a trail. It's got kind of it's real steep rollover on the top, falls flat, which is in no way flat through the middle steep pitch and then kind of rolling through the bottom. Um, it's a great trail. Uh, and anyway, we used to train on it and every once in a while we would train speed. Um, and I, I want to say I was like probably 16, 15 or 16 at the time. So we didn't train a lot of speed. Um, and I was, uh, I'm sort of like a normal sized human now, but in high school I was a very small human. Um, and so they didn't like, I couldn't turn like the 210 or the 205. I remember skis are a lot longer then. Uh, I couldn't turn a lot of those skis. So I was on one of my coach's old GS uh, race skis, 205 at the time, Rosigal, uh, Derby Flex, Solomon Driver Binding, 
great setup and super fast. And these are awesome skis. And they're the black ones. What was that? The, uh, they're black and gold. Is that the, you should know this, but it's seven X. Anyway, I'm going to get it wrong. Rossi product managers can be mad at me, but anyway, it's awesome race ski. <laughs> and so we were, uh, and the Solomon driver is like the most solid binding of all time, right? I mean, it's like you step into that thing, it's like stepping into an airplane. Um, and so uh, we're training, it's getting late in the day, things are getting ready, right? And at the bottom of the second pitch, like it was set pretty straight, like we were probably going full, full stripper, probably out of 50, 60, 65. And again, I'm this skinny little kid and we're running and I, I just came into the bottom delay at the bottom of the pitch with like a little back, like a little inside. And I just had unweighted my outside ski, maybe just a touch too much. And my outside ski was just gone. Right. And nowhere to be found, uh, as happens. And I don't remember exactly what happened next, but I think I probably just like laid down. Um, but the next thing I knew. Uh, and again, at this time, the the side of the hill, it just sort of disappeared. And then there was like a long drop of just sort of snow. So there wasn't much there. And then there was like a big pile of trees next to the the like town series race start. And I sort of like just remember like a lot of movement. And then I ended up uh, stopped and I couldn't move at all. Um, and I couldn't figure out why I didn't know if I was dead or like what. So. I started trying to move and I had taken both layers of B netting that were set up, uh, with me when I hit them over the roll down the hill and into the trees. So I was like fit. I was like a fish in a net upside down, uh, safe, thankfully, but upside down in the tree. And it took, and the coaches thought I was dead for sure, but they came like sprinting over the hill, pulled me out. They were like, somehow I was fine. Close call miracle. Thank you. Um, but yeah, they canceled training after that. That was the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Any time you have a story, I have like one of my bad crash stories. There's the line where I say the part where all my friends thought I was dead. Yeah. So anytime it's like, and the coaches thought I was dead or my friends thought I was dead. That is, you know, you're, you're into solid story territory <laughs> there normally. But then you also have the added uh, bonus of, and practice was over. Yeah, that was the end. So, there was nobody else was going into the yeah. fence. Well, the fence was gone too. So, thanks. Thankfully, there was bee netting there, uh, and and I was very lucky. So that was. Cool. And yeah, you weren't that you you weren't banged up too badly, or you, no broken bones, no horror. Yeah, I don't I don't no remember the detail. I mean, yeah, it's many years ago now. Yeah. I'm no longer 16. I'll tell you that much. Um, but it was yeah, it was like I'm sure I was bruised and like scared and banged up um but no like no broken bones no hospital we didn't really check for concussions then the way we did we do now (laughs) (laughs) right no uh and you're not dead so you're fine yeah Yeah. but i don't remember blacking out or anything i think i was probably but you know and we had those like i think i had a brico helmet at the time remember those brico helmets that were like Mm -hmm. two and a half inches thick Mm -hmm. all the way around um so that that protects the mountain pretty good okay well, the good news is if on that day, well, if you were 16 today and that happened and the injuries were worse as you were flying off course into nets and almost trees and and all the coaches think you're dead, um, you would be covered in that scenario with our Blister Plus injury insurance because it 
there's not an age restriction on it. You can, anybody who's doing these activities, skiing, snowboarding, climbing, mountain biking, road biking, gravel riding, that you can go see the full list. You can be 95 years old or older. You can be 14 years old or younger. If you're doing those activities, you're covered. And we are seeing more and more parents actually signing their kids up because the parents don't have to worry about, or the, the I'm sorry, the kids yeah. don't have to worry about insurance or the deductibles all the parents do. right so anyway i mean i think that's, it's that's it's that one. it's super relevant i mean you told me a little bit about this product which i think is super cool and you know like just something to remember i mean skiing skiing biking all these they're inherently dangerous like you're moving fast with very little protection um and whether you're doing something crazy or whether you're really trying to be careful um you know you're moving fast and so and i think even just removing some of that stress of like you know, even if you have, not everybody even has health insurance, right? But like, if you're lucky enough to have health insurance and, uh, you know, but you're like, am I covered? Is it going to work out? Like, there's just like this whole other, and sometimes yeah. like, it, what's how high is my deductible? Yeah. That's the big thing I'm finding. The more conversations I have, people are like, I have insurance. I'm like, cool. How big is your deductible? And a lot of people are like, I don't know. Or they're like, it's $6,500. And then I just stare blankly at them. And give them like five seconds and they're like, holy cow, anything happens, I'm on the hook for 6,500 at least. And that's when it just becomes a math problem, right? Like the blister plus injury insurance stuff, it's 395 for for 12 months of coverage. Yeah. So anyway, anyway, people just be good at math. All, that's <laughs> all. We'll end on that. But just go do your, it's an, I like to say it's a bit of an IQ test and it's a math problem. That's all it is. And if, and if the math doesn't work, don't work, don't you worry about it. But, um, for many, many people out there, we think it can help. And, uh, so anyway, that's that. Hey man, um, appreciate the time for people who want to learn more about the parlor program. Where is your preferred place to send them? Uh, the website is great. Parlorskis.com. Um, and through that, you can uh, you can get in touch with me pretty easily. We have a web form. My email's uh, marketparlorskis.com. Uh, I'm pretty old school in the fact that I like... I mean, I can text and DM and all these sort of like social media driven things. But uh, phone calls and emails are sort of like the conversation of my generation and and and, I, and honestly in person i mean we do we probably do about 50 percent of our fittings over the phone and about 50 percent ish in person a lot of people will come to the shop i mean you you were in the shop the other day you know it's right downtown boston yeah. obviously like that doesn't help if you live in colorado or, or california or whatever right but if i may yeah if anybody is traveling to boston mm -hmm. i think this is worth saying yeah. Like if you're going into Boston for business or to see family or something, I think it is a 10 minute Uber drive from Logan. If Airport. That, it's like, like six, if it's six heavy, minutes, if it's heavy. Yeah. yeah. If it's heavy traffic, put it more like 10 on a lighter traffic day. It's five minutes. And so I, I can attest, like if you're curious and thinking about new skis and you're, and you're coming to Boston for some reason, it's a super easy thing to do. Um, if you're coming into Logan, they're right there in East Boston. And, um, I, I literally kind of, I did the opposite of that I went <laughs> to the factory and then I ran off, <laughs> ran off for my last meeting in Boston, which was at the airport. So, yeah. And, it, and again, it's like, it's super nice to be in the big urban center. We didn't talk about that in, in this podcast, but we have in the past, right? I mean, we have 
a lot of great universities here. There's a lot of like, we're able to leverage talent from that. We have a really strong internship program with um, co-op program yeah. with some of the schools we're around and, you know, just a lot of our clientele are here and they're stoked. And, um, and it's just nice to be able to come in. I think people really appreciate being able to see how a ski goes together, you know, and, and to kind of like, again, you've been in a lot of ski factories. Most people haven't. And, you know, from my office where we sit and do the fittings, there's a window you can, you know, you can watch the, the, the people making the skis in the other room. And, you know, we always take people through, we're pretty transparent about it. I mean, a lot of what I like to do is educate, you know, and, and try to bring people deeper into the culture and get them excited about it, teach them about the tech. And, um, so yeah, we always happy to have you in the shop. We're at parlor skis on Instagram. Um, if that's your jam, definitely there as well. Yeah. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. It's been uh fun catching up and, seeing you in person uh again and psyched for that and um appreciate it and uh talk to you soon thanks a lot Jonathan. well that's it for this edition of gear 30 i want to say thanks to mark for the great conversation thanks to the strikingly handsome justin bob for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening also just to give you an update on the whole let's have jonathan go break his wrists and get on a board I'm recording this on Thursday evening. As of this morning, I believe we have just uh, 63 ratings of Gear 30 to go in Apple Podcasts. And then we officially trigger Operation Broken Wrists. It's time to get me on a snowboard for the first time in my life. And we're going to video the whole thing and you can watch it. And I hope I don't actually break both wrists, but I'm really excited to do this. Our man, Justin Bob, is going to be making my first turns there with me. It's going to be glorious and scary, and it might involve an emergency room visit. I don't know. But anyway, thanks to all of you who have been leaving reviews. They're often hilarious and sometimes really great and flattering. We're really grateful to everybody who takes a minute to leave a review. And folks, now to those of you who haven't, there's like 66 left. We're counting on you to pull us across the finish line. Let's get this done. Let's go ride some freaking snowboards. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon.